Welcome to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring you weekly sermons that uplift your soul, strengthen your spirit, and praise the Lord. Whatever your reason for listening, we're grateful for you spending your time with us. May God open your heart to love and your ears to hear. Please remain standing for the reading of the gospel. Our lesson this morning is from John chapter 3. Listen for the word of God. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My first word was light. It sounded more like it, because of course L's are hard for little ones to get the hang of for a little while, but it was very clear. I would point up towards the ceiling or to a lamp or to a pot light and say it, it. Now, this may be projection, but is it any wonder now that I'm a minister and my job is to testify to the light of the world? That may be a preacher story, but my mom is here, and she can, she can testify that really was my first word, uh, was light. I was drawn to it. I was fascinated by it. It's what captured my earliest attention and energy. Hear this again from John's gospel that Alice just read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world may be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to that light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Now, if I were a betting woman, I would bet that there is not a person in this room, even if it's your first time ever, to walk into a church who hasn't heard that first verse, John 3, 16. Even if you've never even read the Bible before, you're probably familiar with the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. John 3.16 is ubiquitous in our culture. Uh, You may not know that that's it, but you've seen John 3.16, right, on billboards or on bumper stickers. For whatever reason, it's really big at sporting events, right? Fans hold up signs that say John 3.16. Some guys even take their shirts off and paint their chests with John 3.16. I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind, but to, to each his own. Well, when we read and we share this one particular verse, I'm afraid that sometimes we are in danger of pulling it outside of its contact, from its context, from the larger passage and the narrative of John. This is a speech, it comes at the end of a speech from Jesus to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, that religious leader, the Pharisee, he's witnessed over and over again the signs that Jesus is doing. Uh, But he's worried because Jesus is threatening to the religious establishment that if he goes to him during the day and people see them together, um, that people might start to get skeptical of him. So he comes to Jesus at night. He wants to see him. And he says, you must be of God. There cannot be another explanation for who you are and what you are doing, your signs, your miracles. Tell me more about who you are. Jesus says, well... You've got to be born again, born from above. Nicodemus has a hard time understanding. I've already been born. I'm old. I I don't really understand what you're trying to say to me. Well, sometimes John 3.16 can get used as some kind of litmus test or some kind of twisted evangelism tool. You better believe this or else or else you are going to be condemned to hell, or else you're not going to receive eternal life, or even, God forbid, that you cannot receive God's love. If you walk in the dark, you're condemned to eternal darkness. But the very next verse, the very next one, says God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. And the verse begins with that very good news that God loves the world, the whole world, all of creation. After all, God created the world and called it good. Now, it is true that we humans have abused and distorted this world. And because of our actions, there is much suffering and cruelty. The season of Lent, we journey with Jesus towards the cross And it's a time when we particularly reflect on all the ways that we are tempted to pull away from God. So it's a good time to reflect on this meeting, not just for Nicodemus, but for us too. But it doesn't mean that unless we say this verse or answer one question, that God's love is going to be ripped away from us. 
because the story we experience during Lent of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it actually tells us the opposite. Because the truth is, like it or not, we don't have a choice about God's love for us. God loves us, in fact, not because of our choices or something that we said one time, but really in spite of who we are and what we do or what we don't do. Because the world does love darkness rather than light. And what does God do in face of all of our attempts to pull away from God? Through greed and violence and exploitation. God comes to earth as one of us. As a human being and the person of Jesus, he walks with us and talks with us and eats with us and cries with us. Experiences what we experience, grief and pain and hunger and joy and sadness, friendship. And what do we do? We continue to mess up so royally that we can't handle such love in a human being and our God. So the story of Lent is one of not only rejecting God, but crucifying God. We kill Jesus. This is what we move to towards Good Friday. And what does God do? Does God say, because you didn't believe, because you denied me and rejected me, my love is taken away from you? You better believe or else you are condemned to hell? No. You know this, God does the opposite in the face of such betrayal and such tragedy and such violence. God raises Jesus from the dead and says, death does not win. Pain and violence and suffering and brokenness, betrayal, they do not win. Jesus has eternal life, and all of us do too. We're offered this gift after we killed God. It is an extraordinary love that is hard to compliment. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do that will ever take that love away. What a light we have in Jesus. It's a love and a light that is worth testifying to. So our task during Lent as Christians, it's not about whether to make a particular choice about Jesus, a one-time ascent of belief, but it's about how we allow Christ, who is the light of the world and the light of our lives, to guide us, to guide our world, to center ourselves in that good news that we are loved, and then to begin to respond accordingly uh, so that we reflect that light and the broken and the dark places break forth with love. And I have to confess to you that too often, as much as I want to testify to the light of the world, I can get distracted by so much else and pulled away, and it is so easy to find my center in things that are not Jesus. Sometimes those things are even light. As a society right now, we are obsessed with creating and moving towards artificial light wherever we go. It's in our screens, it's in our phones, it's outside around us. Artificial light is everywhere, and it can be tempting and it can be distracting. There's a beautiful book by Barbara Brown Taylor, who is an Episcopal priest and preacher and writer. It's called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And she decides that for a season, she is going to become a student of darkness. She wonders why we are so afraid of it. Um, and she discovers what the darkness can teach us when we stop living out of that kind of fear and instead embrace it. She spends time in literal darkness, so under the night sky, out in an area all alone where there aren't any street lights. So it's just her and the vast 
night sky, the natural light from the stars. She goes to the Dialogue in the Dark exhibit here in Atlanta. It was here a few years ago. Uh, it simulates what it's like to live as someone without sight. She goes caving. She goes deep down into the depths of the earth where light cannot touch. Her guide allows her to sit in the cave to contemplate life. And all of these explorations she begins to name and to understand the gifts of darkness. How being under the night sky without so much as a flashlight gives her a great sense of peace, a reality check about her very small place in the universe. And that brief simulation of blindness and reading writings by and visiting with folks who cannot see, she hears them describe how much light is actually in their lives and they take in how the other senses are heightened. And then when she goes deep into that cave, she meditates and she loses track of time. She doesn't know if she's been there 30 minutes or three hours. And she understands now why all the great religious leaders that we have throughout various faith traditions all spend time in caves and in darkness. In fact, a cave is where Jesus was born. Um, if you go to Bethlehem and see his birthplace, it's actually not a little um, manger scene out in a farm like we imagine, but it was actually um, the animals lived in the side of a cave. And of course, when he emerges on Easter morning, his tomb is in a cave. So we have Jesus at the beginning um, and the end and the new beginning of his life, starting there in caves and darkness with God. Darkness has much to teach us. And in spite of what we tend to know or believe culturally about darkness and light, in spite of the biblical narrative sometimes that readily dichotomizes light is good and darkness is bad, she opens us up to the reality of what it means to live in a kind of uh, real darkness, but also metaphorical darkness, and that we need that. And yet, she cites all these studies about how humans are continually creating more and more artificial light. There are lots of studies, if you read the articles about how to sleep better, right? They all tell you to remove the light from your room. We've got our cell phones, we've got alarms, we've got um, sensors, carbon monoxide detectors, everything's got a light that's beeping. They say that really makes it a lot harder for us to sleep. Cities have been creating more light throughout all hours of the night now for years, but as cities sprawl and humans increasingly encroach on rural areas, this light is beginning to disrupt the natural order of the world because there are so many creatures around us, birds and insects, turtles. They use the rhythm of night and day, of light and dark to guide how they live. And when we start to put artificial light everywhere, they get confused about when to hibernate, when to give birth. It starts to become actually dangerous for them and for our ecosystem. The good world that God loves and created gets disrupted. We also think that adding light everywhere makes us safer. And she actually cited a study in a town that was worried about crime, so they just put light everywhere, and they found that crime actually went up when that happened. Why are we constantly seeking out artificial forms of life? What are we afraid of when we do that? A few year, four years ago, my Lenten practice that I did throughout the 40 days of Lent was to take work email off of my phone. 
That might sound like a small thing to do, but at the time it was huge for me. Um, and it was revolutionary. I actually have not put work email back on my phone in these four years. I did it in part to quell my anxiety, but when I first started it, it actually really increased my anxiety. I don't think I realized how often I stopped and looked not just at my phone, but particularly at the emails that were coming in on my work account. I would leave, before I left the house to drive Daisy to school, um, right at like eight in the morning, I would look and say, okay, what work emails do I have? I wasn't gonna respond at that moment, I wasn't gonna respond till I got to the office, but I would look and then my mind would start going wondering what was on my plate. I would drive Daisy to school, take her in, come back to my car. Okay, now I'm gonna look at my work email 15 minutes later, has something else come in? Does someone else need me? Is there something else I need to attend to? I would even start to look at stoplights between her school and work. And then when I got there, right, check in with a few people, but I actually sat down at my computer and then looked at it, and that was the moment I could do something about it or respond to it. There's availability, there's an accessibility, but then there becomes addiction. I started to peel back the layers about what this might mean for me spiritually. I did soul searching and asked a lot of questions. What kind of need is it filling inside of me to be constantly connected to these emails? Does it make me feel important? Does it make me feel busy? What is so urgent that I think that I need to check in between stoplights when there's nothing I can do about it? If I have a few minutes in a waiting room, am I so scared to be alone with my thoughts that I can't just sit there rather than looking at that email for two minutes? I also, the beginning of this year, took the Facebook app off my phone for the same reasons, because I realized, you know, you're waiting in line at the women's room outside and you're seeing what your high school friend had for lunch that day. Like, it becomes a compulsion to be drawn to that. It was a challenge, but I began to feel more of a centeredness and a peace after that. There were multiple factors, um, but I looked out of habit or boredom. I had more time just to sit. And instead of always checking, I knew that I had a container around it. And also the byproduct is I'm going to be a lot more productive and a lot more responsive if I'm sitting down and focused and saying this is my task right now than just having it float around all the time. It opened up more space for embodied relationships, uh, for real conversation with others and myself and with God. And hear me, I'm no Luddite. I believe there's great value in technology uh, and the gifts of connection with each other, the gifts of social media that can help us stay connected with people we might not otherwise. Uh, It's good for the world and democratization in a lot of ways. But I'm also at my computer multiple times a day. So this just gave me a little bit of boundary sense about when and why and how I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and to not just be doing it out of compulsion or anxiety or a fear of what might happen when I just dared to let go a little bit and be with God. Now, it's not sitting in a cave. <laughs> it's not meditating on the meaning of life. But it is a lesson for me continually. I still look at other things on my phone um, about why I'm so addicted in particular to that kind of artificial light. And it's a reminder that it's not good or healthy to seek so much meaning from it all the time. Any light isn't necessarily good. Any kind of dark isn't necessarily bad. A balance of light and dark is there in the created order, right? God created light and God created night and called them good. 
John makes a particular rhetorical point here with his imagery of lightness and dark. And he's a beautiful poet and theologian. But when we look at the larger biblical narrative, there are many gifts of darkness that grow us closer to God. God comes to many people at night. This is where Nicodemus encounters Jesus. John says that we love darkness rather than light. I think in our modern world, we love artificial light more than Jesus, the light of the world, and it can keep us from the light of Christ. Our struggle becomes when we seek, our struggle comes when we seek that other than Jesus to center ourselves, to illumine our paths, to illumine the world. And often that comes not out of malice, but it just comes out of fear of what we think allowing ourselves in the darkness can lead to, a bit of silence, some pain. We may have to wrestle with some untapped grief, wrestle with God. We reflect on the places we are broken, the world is broken. I'll hold all these fears. I'd rather distract myself with other things. This year, my Lenten practice is centering prayer. It's a kind of prayer where you sit in silence, usually a little bit in the dark, with your eyes closed, and empty everything out. So I love prayers with words, devotions where I can journal, where I can talk to God and be a little bit in control. But this kind of prayer is a total emptying. You sit in silence. My goal is to do it five minutes a day and just empty out and to be for those five minutes with God. My therapist and my spiritual director has been trying to get me to do this for six years. Six years to just say sit for five minutes in silence and in the dark. I don't know why I find it so wholly terrifying and difficult to do. I can be disciplined in a whole lot of other ways, but it is hard for me to just sit and be in silence for five minutes a day. Why is it so hard to just sit in the dark? The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, when we sit in that darkness, God is with us through it, and God loves the world so much that God walks through the dark night of the soul with, with us, before us, beside us, behind us. And this is the journey of Lent, even if it's terrifying. We're not called to run away from the difficult parts of the story, but to go to the cross with Jesus, knowing that whatever kind of pain that we're facing, we do not do it alone. We face it with the unconditional love of our God who also knows that pain. Now, you probably have all kinds of other things that distract you from Jesus. Your issues are not going to be the same as mine. But I do think that all of us have some kind of artificial light that we seek out to distract us from our center could be alcoholism, workaholism, busyness, television, accumulating stuff, isolating ourselves. And I do think that more and more this reliance on technology and these artificial lights that are before us all of the time, it has detrimental consequences to our ability to sit and to be in the dark and the natural light. After the sermon today, you're going to have some moments of reflection. I hope you'll reflect today on these two questions and let them carry you with you throughout the week. What artificial light is keeping me from encountering Jesus? And then what one practice might I engage in that can redirect my center back to Jesus? 
when we're unafraid to face the darkness, when we dare to turn off all those artificial lights that keep us humming and buzzing, but eventually give us a headache, we will grow closer to God. And as we journey through the night openly and willingly like Nicodemus, we're going to receive that promise that joy comes in the morning. And sunlight will wash over us like that gift of new love and life that is ours on Easter morning, encountering the God who loves us because God so loves the world. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen. As you go this morning, go with this blessing. Leave this place knowing and believing that God so loves the world. So may we engage in practices that keep us centered in God's light and nothing else. Go forth with the peace of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church podcast. We hope that you have found our podcast helpful and hope to be in ministry not only to you, but with you. For more information about Sandy Springs United Methodist Church, please visit www.ssumc.org. Until next time, may God bless you.